do a quick recap, especially because we have some new people. Uh, it's not going to be long at all. Um, and today we're going to watch uh, two videos, but they're going to be shorter than last week. Last week was a very long introduction. And this week we're only doing one topic, but I'm going to show you a video presented by uh, two different people so that you kind of get that reinforcement. And I'm gonna overemphasize the reinforcement. Um, sometimes you're literally gonna hear the same thing repeated by these two different guys. Sometimes I'm gonna repeat it a third time. And my purpose for that is like I said, the more you hear it, the more likely you are to remember it if you're ever having a, a conversation with someone who's asking you these very same questions. Um, and when I was first discovering this stuff and I was doing a course on it many years ago, I remember sitting in that course and, and I was highly entertained and enthralled with all this information, but I literally just heard it once. And then, you know, when, when that stuff came up again, I was like, oh, I know there's answers to this, but you're going to have to hold on. I need to go back and, and do my research again because I hadn't reinforced it enough in my brain. So hearing it once is enough for you personally to kind of have that peace that what we believe is totally verifiable by history and um, archaeology, etc. cetera. Um, but if you really want to use it to help draw very intellectual people to Christ, it's helpful to have that reinforcement. Okay, um, so in the first week, we didn't really do that much. It was just kind of an introduction to why this type of thing is important. So if you weren't here the first week, you should go back and listen to that. Um, and so in the second week, we did um, proper historical method. And uh, it went a little bit theoretical and philosophical, but we needed to do that because it was explaining how historians go and look at a document and evaluate it to determine whether it's accurate, uh, whether the, the writer uh, was an eyewitness or whether he's just making up a story. Um, because we have lots of ancient documents, but how do you determine whether this person was telling the truth or writing a fictional story or had an agenda? Um, and so there are certain criteria that historians have set up to use when they look at a document. Um, and we need to know that going forward because we're gonna be using that as we, as we cover each of the topics going forward. Um, I did mention something last week that I'm gonna mention again. And the, uh, the methods used for examining a document are universal. However, um, Something that irritates me and a lot of biblical scholars is that when it comes to any texts that have to do with the Bible, the same historians that use the same methods don't want to apply those methods to biblical texts. Because if they do, it, it validates them. Um, and so they have a double standard. They're like, this is the standard we use for all documents, oh, but not the Bible documents, which isn't fair. But the reason they do that is because we have so much evidence that our faith is true, that if they apply the same baseline that they do for everything else, they have to admit that um, the Bible and all the manuscripts relating to the Bible are, are true accounts written honestly and from eyewitnesses. And if you believe that, then you have a problem, right? If you have 500 people saying, I saw Alyssa murder Jamichael, 
right? You have a very big problem if you're gonna go, mm -mm, no, she didn't, right? Especially if you're not an eyewitness, you're just a person looking at the facts. And so if, if they validate that these are eyewitness accounts, then they have to validate what the eyewitnesses said, which is this was the son of God. He performed miracles. He was crucified. He crucified. He was raised from the dead. I'm sorry. My cat is okay. Um, so this week, the topic we're covering might also seem kind of stupid, but we're covering, did Jesus live? Did he actually exist? Which seems silly to us because it's like, I mean, come on, that's pretty obvious. But there are literally people out there, even some scholars who challenge it. There was this whole movement um, a couple of decades ago um, called, I think it was like the Jesus Seminar or something. And they went on to, I know they based a lot of their evidence on the Da Vinci Code. Yes, the fictional book. Somehow they took that and they used that as their proof. And they went on this huge rant about how Jesus wasn't who he said he was and he might not have existed. And then like Time Magazine and everything picked up on it. And they posted all these things about Jesus is a myth. And they blew this thing out of proportion. But no serious scholars, you know, take them seriously. But unfortunately, you know how it is. People see an article and they don't bother to do any research. So there are people out there who think that Jesus didn't even exist. So that's the first thing we're going to cover. Because if, if he doesn't, didn't exist, it doesn't really matter anything else about him, right? Because he's just a fictional character. So we're going to look at using historical method. Um, did Jesus really exist? So before I play the video, does anyone remember the three criteria that we use when looking at a historical document to verify its accuracy? You can name one, two, or all three. Multiple attestation. Yeah. Um, embarrassing facts. Speak up. Oh. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Um, embarrassing facts. Oh, no, not, not you. Sorry. Someone in the crowd was. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> and there was one other that I can't remember. All right. So we have multiple attestations, principle of embarrassment. Yes. The um, concept of coherence. So for those who weren't here, that basically means um, multiple attestations means we have multiple sources saying the same thing. And even more powerful if you can find a source outside of the original sources. So for example, if I hate Alyssa, right? But I'm like, no, she was innocent. You know, like, can I find someone who doesn't have a, a bias, who wasn't her friend, who said the truth, right? Um, and the more evidence we have, the better. Then there's a principle of embarrassment, which is did whoever write about the topic did they say anything that could damage their cause did they say anything that embarrasses them or or the people they're speaking about and uh an example with um alexander the great was the person who wrote about him said he was the greatest general that ever lived but when he wrote about um his wars he mentioned stuff like arguments between him and the generals and the generals not always agreeing with him um him losing battles and having to retreat. And so if you had this 
ulterior motive of, I want to present this as the greatest general ever, you wouldn't say things like he lost battles, he had to retreat, his generals didn't always listen to him. You know, you would present him as this amazing person who never lost and no one disagreed with him. Same thing in the Bible. When we hear about Peter denying Jesus, when we hear about the disciples scattering, um, when, um, when uh, we hear about Paul disagreeing with um, Barnabas or, or um, rebuking Peter, all these things are, make the document more true because they're not portraying Christianity as this perfect, infallible thing that everyone just believes and no one denied. And then the last one is coherence which is um, the things that are written in the document, other, do they make sense, right? Or were they just made up? Is there other things that verify it? So this can be within the text or outside the text. So outside the text would be um, like uh, them saying, uh, Pilate was the governor of Judea during Jesus's time. And then we find another document that has nothing to do with Christianity and randomly mentions during this time, these were the governors of Judea, blah, 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 and Pilate. And so we're like, okay, we know that Pilate was a governor. The text said that Pilate was a governor. So we've added validity to this text that we're examining. Internal coherence is the example they gave in the video that we watched was if um, we know that Jesus was crucified from outside sources as well, not just the Bible. So that's a fact. Is stuff in the writing coherent with that fact? And the fact that Jesus um, offended the Pharisees or religious leaders, um, claimed he was God, which was blasphemy, all these things make it logical that they would crucify him. So then we give more faith to the document because it's leading to a fact that we already know. All right, so I'm going to ask a pop quiz question and then we're going to start the video. So uh, for those online, you're going to put your answer in the chat and the rest of us, I'm going to go through one by one. So I'm reading it out loud. If Susan has the following in her library, the Bible, Antiquities of the Jews by Josephus, Against Heresies by Irenaeus, and an article on COVID stats in DC by the Washington Post. How many historical documents does she have? I'll give you about 30 seconds. Put your answer in the chat. If you're in person, think about it. All right, I'm gonna give you a few more seconds. Put your answer. Was it one, three, four, or some other answer? Let's go around. What do you say? Like <laughs> um, a random guess if you're three. really okay. <laughs> Take a guess. It's multiple choice. You have a twenty-five percent chance of getting it right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> just did you know you don't even know what D is. You're just saying. I don't even know what number it would be. <laughs> oh, some other. I don't know. I'm not on school. <laughs> um. I, I would say three. Okay. Yeah, three. Three. Okay. Um, Jack said C, which was four? Three? Okay. Three. Where's Esther's answer? Three. <laughs> 
Okay, so I see a lot of threes. Okay, so this worked out perfectly. I tricked you all. <laughs> and so um, the, the COVID article was to throw you off because I thought it would be too obvious if I didn't put in something there that was obviously wrong. So obviously an article on COVID is not a historical document. It's a modern document. It's not even a document, it's a blog post. Um, but here's the mistake that a lot of scholars even make and should be brought up to them if they ever use this argument. You looked at that list, you eliminated the Washington Post article, which is correct. And then you had three historical documents left. However, here's the problem. People today count the Bible as one document. It is not one document. The Bible was written by a lot of people over a very long period of time and was later compiled into one book. But the Bible is a book containing books. And so secular people will look at it and say, oh, you only have one historical document to prove Christianity. But we, we don't. We have, who's, who had Bible camp? How many books are in the Bible? 50 something, 60 something? 66. 66. So we have 66 books attesting to the same thing. And then within those books, some of them contain multiple witness accounts. And that's just us looking at a historical document as a whole. We're not even talking about manuscript evidence. So in other words, we're counting the, the gospel of John as one, where really any historian will look at it and say, okay, how many documents that do I have that are copies, fragments of it, like little pieces of scroll that have been found that just have a few lines on it. Um, how many times did external sources quote that? So if Alyssa was alive 100 years after Jesus died and she wrote a book and she randomly verbatim quoted one verse of John, she is now used as a historical document to verify the book of John. And so the Bible does not count as one thing. And if anyone ever argues that to you, make sure that you make it clear to them that um, from a historian's perspective, anytime you have one person writing down one thing, that is one historical document that's attesting to a fact. So at the very minimum, you have 60, 66 mm -hmm. at the very minimum, if you count them as whole, but technically you have a lot more. And like I said last week, we're going to go into the numbers um, in a later week. And I'm going to give you like the exact numbers of how many documents we have on everything. And it's, it's really awesome to see. Um, all right. So we're going to go into the first video. Uh, he is going to touch on external evidence, but he's not going to go in a ton of detail. But the second video is going to go in more detail about external evidence for did Jesus really live. Um, and remember, if you're online, I'm sorry, it is going to lag a little bit. We still haven't figured out how to fix it. It may just be how it is. All right, but I fixed the sound in person. So hopefully everyone will be able to hear this time. God willing. Okay, Sandra, I have a question. Yeah, go ahead. The videos that you're showing the us, are those um, available to the public or is that a subscription service? Okay, so the one that we're looking at right now um, is a paid course. 
And the second one we're going to do that one, you have to like log in, like you have to give your email, but that one is free. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. If anyone can't hear or see, just send a message in the chat. Okay. Um, so why do you choose to be a Christian instead of like a Buddhist or a Muslim? Accident of birth. I, I was born, you know, in America in the 20th century and that I grew up in a, a, a Christian home. Why would you prefer to be a Christian instead of like a Buddhist or a Muslim? To be honest, I was raised Christian. That's just what I was taught. I don't have a rhyme or reason, but that's just what I was taught. So um, the stories are, they are what they are, and I've just been raised to believe in them. So I don't really know other. So in this section now, we're going to be talking about the historical sources regarding the life of Jesus. We're going to get into those documents. What are those documents from ancient history? Where can we go to learn about the real Jesus? Now, before we get into this, I just have to clarify something because a lot of people just get confused about this. So let's just clear the air right now. You have to understand because when we're going to go talk about the historical sources regarding Jesus, we're going to be getting into the New Testament, which is obviously part of the Bible, but the New Testament and the Bible itself is not one historical source. You have to understand this. The Bible is not just one book written by one author. It is a collection of books, a collection of works written by different authors over a very long period of time. So when we you know, start talking about different parts of the New Testament, that is not one historical source. That is, that is a collection of many different historical sources. Now this is probably obvious to a lot of you, but trust me, a lot of people don't get this. So a lot of people think if you start talking about the New Testament, oh, that's just, that they treat it kind of monolithically. That's just, that's just one historical source, the New Testament. But, but it's a collection of works. It's a collection of different works written by different authors. So, you know, the author of Matthew is not the author of 1 Corinthians. Okay, these, these are different works. So just because they've all been collected now into what we call the New Testament or the Bible, they are still separate, independent historical works. So, so please, if you, if you didn't already know that, Please make sure you understand that now. Let's talk now about those different historical sources for the life of Jesus. Now these historical sources for the life of Jesus can be divided into three main categories. Now first off, you have the Gospels, and this is what everybody thinks about when we're talking about the life of Jesus. So we've got the Gospels here, that is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
The next type of historical source for the life of Jesus are the New Testament epistles. Now we're going to talk more about this in a minute, but these are basically the letters of Paul, James, John, Peter, the New Testament epistles, that is, the epistles outside of the Gospels. These are different sources, as I've said before. The third type of historical source for the life of Jesus are the non-Christian documents, documents outside of the New Testament, but also written by non-Christians. So writers like Josephus, Tacitus, Pliny, Suetonius, and a few others. So these are the three main historical sources for the life of Jesus. You've got the Gospels, you've got the New Testament epistles, and then you've got the non-Christian writings. Now regarding the Gospels, we have to make an important clarification. First of all, you got what we could call the Gospels proper. That is, the Gospels in their finished form, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But what you also need to know is that most scholars today think that the Gospel writers use sources. They had, they had access to sources when they wrote their own Gospels. This comes from a certain internal analysis of the Gospels. When you look at all the texts and you lay them out side by side, you can see certain commonalities and differences, which indicate that they had different sources. And scholars name these sources in this way. You have what scholars call Q, the Q tradition. That's just material that's in both Matthew and Luke, but not anywhere else. You've got what's called the M tradition, which is just material that is found only in Matthew. You've got L tradition, which is material found only in Luke. It's also recognized that there are oral traditions behind the Gospels. And you have what some scholars call a pre-Markan tradition, which is the source where the Gospel writer Mark got his material. So we'll talk a little bit more about this later, but for now, I just want you to know that when we talk about the Gospels, we could talk about just the Gospels proper, that is, in their final format, or we could be talking about the Gospel sources behind them. But again, we'll get into this a little bit later. For now, let's look at a few of those non-Gospel sources. First of all, you have, as I said, the non-Christian testimony about Jesus. Now, we're not going to talk about this too much in this course, because it doesn't give us a whole lot of detail, but it does give us a kind of broad outline of the life of Jesus. So it's certainly worth mentioning here. We can see from these non-Christian writers a broad picture of Jesus. If we look at the works of, say, Josephus, Tacitus, Lucian, and the Babylonian Talmud and kind of pull all that information together, we can gather that there was a man named Jesus who was a, a so-called Christ with wise and persuasive teachings and a doer of miracles and other sorts of quote-unquote sorcery, had a brother named James and followers who worshipped him as God, and who got into trouble with the Jewish authorities and was crucified on a cross. So generally speaking, that's about it. It's not a lot, but we shouldn't expect much either. After all, Jesus was in a remote corner of Palestine, a remote corner of the Roman Empire, and there wasn't really much reason at that time for Roman historians to even talk about him. So the fact that they do mention him at all is actually quite significant. But it does give us an overall picture of, of Jesus that we do see reflected in the Gospels. Now regarding these non-Christian sources, we might ask, are they independent? Maybe, maybe they got all their information from just other Christians. Well, it's hard to say, at least with the Roman historians, it could be that Thallus and Suetonius and those guys, that they, when, they wrote, when they wrote about Jesus, 
It could be that they got all their information from other Christians. We just don't know. It could be that it's independent. Maybe they didn't get all their information from Christians. It's just impossible to say. However, I think we can say with confidence that Josephus, the Jewish historian, he is, in fact, an independent source to the historical Jesus. Next, let's look at these New Testament epistles. Now, I want to stress the importance of treating the New Testament epistles seriously. A lot of scholars just kind of overlook these and focus on the Gospels. And we'll talk more about the Gospels in a minute. But we have to talk first, I think, about the importance of the New Testament epistles as historical documents when it comes to, when it comes to the life of Jesus. Why do I say this? The first reason is because, obviously, when you're doing historical research, you want to take into account all of the relevant material. You don't want to leave important stuff out, okay? So we've got some relevant material here in the New Testament epistles that's, that, that relates to the life of Jesus. So we want to have complete information that's, that's relevant, okay? So we want to bring in these New Testament epistles when it comes to our understanding of the historical Jesus. We don't want to leave these things out. That's an obvious point. Another reason we want to emphasize the importance of the New Testament epistles is because it's older information. It's commonly accepted today in New Testament scholarship that the New Testament epistles are the oldest documents in the New Testament. These are the first documents. These are the first historical documents that we have about Christianity. So again, these things are very important. A third reason why we should take these New Testament epistles seriously when it comes to the historical Jesus is because they offer incidental information about Jesus. When these things are written, when the epistles are written, they're written from a Christian to other believing Christians. They're not, they're not writing a life of Jesus to some non-Christian, some unbeliever. No, it's, just from, it's, a, it's, a, it's a letter from one Christian to another group of fellow Christians. So they're not trying to convince their audience that Jesus is God and so on. They're, they're just talking about some local event in the Corinthian church or, or what's going on over here at Ephesus. And so when they mention Jesus, they don't do so with some kind of um, motive of, of a, an apologetical motive or trying to uh, persuade a non-believer. No, the mention of Jesus in these, in these epistles is just incidental. It's just in passing. And so it can't be uh, accused of trying to have some sort of uh, apologetical uh, motive or anything like that. No, the material here in these New Testament epistles doesn't have that. It's just incidental, innocent, you know, in passing information about the life of Jesus. So again, that makes these New Testament epistles very important and they should be taken uh, seriously when it comes to the life of Jesus. As New Testament scholar Paul Barnett writes, Scholars who seek to recover the historical Jesus must not omit the letters from their considerations, as they often do. Many reconstructed versions of Jesus, that is by the modern scholars, are quite unlike the exalted figure whose proclamation was, as we have shown, presumed in the letters. So I think it's clear that the New Testament epistles should be taken as serious historical sources for the life of Jesus. It's a huge oversight to neglect these, and unfortunately, a lot of scholars tend to do that. Everybody wants to focus on the Gospels and try to cut them up and, and you know, call them into question and just forget about the New Testament epistles. No, we can't, we can't do that. So what do these New Testament epistles get us? What do they tell us? 
Well, let's suppose that we, did, that we didn't have the Gospels. The Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John don't exist. They were never written. What could we know about the historical Jesus just from the New Testament epistles? Well, actually quite a bit. For example, we see that Jesus descended from Abraham and David, that Jesus was born of a woman, something significant there about his birth, that Jesus gathered disciples, Peter and John, and had a relative named James, that Jesus was a model of moral excellence, that Jesus opposed divorce, that Jesus had a last supper, that Jesus testified before Pontius Pilate, that Jesus was killed at the instigation of the Jews and crucified, that after Jesus was buried, he rose from the dead and appeared to the disciples, that Jesus is the Son of God, Christ, Messiah, and Lord, that he is Christ, the God over all, that Jesus was sinless and died for all, and that Jesus will judge the living and the dead. Now this, of course, is just a small summary of what's in these epistles, but we can see just with this short summary that the key biographical details, teachings, and exalted views of Jesus that we see in the later Gospels were convictions that were widespread and held early on when these New Testament epistles were written, confirming that what we see in the Gospels was not a later invention. So that gives you a little background on what we can find in these New Testament epistles about the life of Jesus. The question is now is, are these sources correct? Do they give us a correct account of Jesus of Nazareth? Okay, are they historically accurate? Because again, a lot of people today think, it's, it's very often misunderstood that they just assume that these Gospels or the New Testament is just wrong. It's just factually in error because they've seen the TV shows and the documentaries and so on. So we have to take some time in our Christian apologetics to defend these sources, to defend our knowledge of Jesus of Nazareth, because again, Christianity cannot be indifferent to history. What do we know, in fact, about that real Jesus that we talked about earlier? Okay, so we're going to look at we're going to look now at these historical sources and see are they historically accurate? Should we take them as historically reliable? What should be our general presumption about the historical reliability of these sources? All right. Before I go into that, before I go into the historical reliability of these sources, I want to make a very important point, a very important point that you must understand now. We are aiming to show historical reliability, not divine inspiration. I'm not trying to prove that these, that these historical works over here were written by God. I'm not showing that they are divinely inspired. Historical accuracy and divine inspiration are completely different. We are not aiming to show divine inspiration. I'm not even talking about that right now. I just want to know, is, are, what we want to know right now is are these sources historically accurate? That's all. Divine inspiration is not even on the table. You know, are these the actual work of God, a divine author? We're not talking about that right now, okay? We just look, we're just looking for historical accuracy right now. And I bring that up because as soon as you get and to this question of historical accuracy, people in their minds, they're thinking that you're trying to prove divine authorship. They, they, they confuse those two things. They're not the same thing. You've got divine authorship on one hand and historical accuracy on another, and they're not the same thing. We're not talking about divine authorship here. So we're not going to prove divine inspiration. We're not going to assume divine inspiration. I'm not, as a historian, going to go into this assuming that these works are already 
the inspired Word of God. We're not assuming that. We're looking at these works as a historian would, and we're not going to assume that they're historically reliable. We're not going to assume that they're divinely inspired. We're just going to approach them with normal, a normal historiographical approach, a normal historiographical method. Okay? So we're giving reasons. We're going to give reasons why we should take these things as historically reliable. We're not going to assume they're historically reliable because God wrote it or, or anything like that. So I want to make sure that everybody understands that point. We're not assuming or proving divine inspiration here. We're just looking at the historical documents themselves. We're treating them as, as, a, a, as a historical document. And we're, as, we're asking that simple question, are these things in fact historically reliable? Okay, with that being said now, we need to ask two key questions here. We got two important questions we need to ask in regards to our knowledge of the life of the historical Jesus. The first question we want to know is, given our New Testament, the Gospels and the New Testament epistles, given our New Testament, does that accurately represent what was originally written? We need to know if our New Testament is the same as the originals, you see. That's the first question. And if it is, then we have a second question we have to answer. Simply this, were those originals themselves historically accurate, you see? So we have to ask both of these questions. In order to know something about the life of the historical Jesus, we have to have a yes to those two, key, two, two questions, don't we? We have to answer yes, the, the New Testament that we have does accurately represent the original, and yes, that original itself was historically accurate. We have to have a yes answer to both of those questions if we're going to know very much at all about the life of the historical Jesus. So that's what we're going to look at now. We're going to take these questions one by one. We're going to kind of work our way backwards in time. We're going to start with that first question. Is the New Testament we have today, does it accurately represent the original? And if so, was the original itself historically accurate? Okay, so I'm going to jump straight into the next video. I know that you're really interested now to hear him prove that, but that's a whole nother topic that takes long. So that's going to be broken out in a separate week. Right now, we're just trying to see if there is enough documents to prove that there was someone named Jesus. So we're going to watch the second guy and his video is much shorter. So this guy um, was on the committee for like the translation of the, the ESV and the NIV, I think. So it's not just some random pastor giving his opinion. It's someone who's actually worked with the documents themselves. Well, the first topic we're gonna to look at is the most fundamental question of, did Jesus ever actually live? I mean, if Jesus never lived, then obviously the Bible is not trustworthy. And you may be scratching your heads and going, who would question that? Well, there actually, there are people who are out there saying <laughs> that Jesus is a totally mythical character and then he never actually lived, and everything we read in the Bible is made up by the church. And what is sometimes said is, well, how can you believe that Jesus is a real historical character when there's only one reference to him outside of the Bible and outside of Christian literature? That's how it's often stated. And they're talking about a statement that's in Josephus that we'll look at in a second. Well, the fact of the matter is that we have about 12 references to Jesus from outside of the Bible. And it gives us pretty good attestation and actually some basic awareness of who Jesus was. So let's look at those. 
And the first comes from Josephus, is a Jewish historian of the first century. And here's what he says. And you'll notice the italics, and we'll come back and talk about the italics in a second. It says, now there was a man, this is from his book Antiquities. Now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to himself both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was Christ, or he was the Christ. When Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men amongst us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again on the third day, as the divine prophets have foretold these things and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. And the tribe of Christians, so named from him, are not extinct at this day. Now, the reason that some of those phrases are, are in italics is because it can be argued, and it, they probably are correct in doing so, that those phrases were added later by people in the church. In other words, Josephus never wrote them. And the problem is, is that if you look just at the italics and you say, well, obviously we can't trust this, some people want to throw all of it out. So even if you just remove the suspect parts, the italicized parts, you have a very clear attestation by someone who was no friend of the Christians, he was a Jew, uh, who tells us some information about Jesus. And in fact, on the website, there's a link to a discussion on, uh, with a classical scholar as to the value of Josephus's witness to Jesus. So if you want to look at more, it's there. But Josephus has another comment about Jesus, specifically uh, Jesus's brother, James. In there, Josephus writes, Festus was now dead, and Albinus, who was a high priest, my comment, was but upon the road. So he assembled the Sanhedrin of judges and brought before them the brother of Jesus, who was called Christ, whose name was James. In other words, the brother of Jesus is somebody called James and some others, and when he had formed an accusation against them as breakers of the law, he, meaning Albinus, delivered them, specifically James, uh, to be stoned. So there you have references to Jesus by way of James. So second reference in Josephus. So that's two pretty strong attestations that there was an historical person named Jesus. When you turn to other kinds of literature, specifically the Jewish literature, you'll find that there are references to Jesus in the Talmud, which is a bit surprising because you would think that the, the Jewish writings would just want to ignore Jesus because of the conflict between Jews and Christians. But there are references in the Talmud, and you can get them from the website. But I wanted to look specifically today at the whole issue of Greek and Roman writers. So let me just give you some of the highlights of these writers. Uh, Tacitus was the most reliable uh, Roman historian. He wrote uh, early 2nd century. He's the guy that, that says that Nero blamed the fire uh, in Rome on the Christians. And Tacitus writes that Christians have their name from, quote, Christ, who had been executed by sentence of the procurator Pontius Pilate in the reign of Tiberius. So Tacitus, a, a very well-respected historian, uh, gives us that reference. Suetonius is another Roman historian of the early 2nd century. 
Uh, he is the one who mentions the expulsion of the Jews from Rome in the time of Claudius, a really important uh, thing for uh, dating acts and different things that puts it um, sometime between 41 AD and a little bit later. Anyway, Suetonius says that this expulsion was due to the rioting, quote, at the instigation of Crestus, C-H-R-E-S-T-U-S, uh, probably a, either a variant or a misspelling of the uh, Roman spelling or the Latin spelling, Christus. But anyway, uh, it certainly is Jesus. And so you have Suetonius making a reference to him. Phallus was a first century Greek historian, and we get uh, to his writings through a third century author. But he mentions the darkness that occurred at Jesus' death, which is really interesting. Lucian is a second century writer of satires, and he was no friend of Christians. He, he did not like Christians. He made fun of Christians for worshiping a man as if he were God. And then he goes on to say that Jesus was, quote, a distinguished person who instituted their novel rites and who was therefore crucified. And then later on, he calls Jesus a sage. And just one more. Uh, Pliny the Younger is a second century Roman politician. He wrote to the Emperor Trajan about how to deal with Christians who didn't revere uh, Caesar's image. He wasn't sure what to do with these folks. And it's interesting that Pliny didn't get his information by hearsay. He actually got his information from an apostate Christian. So it's a very direct connection uh, with Christianity, even though the Christian was an apostate. Anyway, Pliny says that Christians meet together regularly and they sing hymns, quote, to Christ as if to a God. Okay, so those are some pretty secure, trustworthy historical references showing that there was an historical person named Jesus in about the time frame uh, that we believe that Jesus lived from the, from the Bible. Now, if you take all of those references and some of the other ones and put them in a list, uh, I'm going to show you what we can know historically about Jesus. And Craig Blomberg, in his discussion, uh, goes into some detail on this. But let me tell you, let me show you what we can know historically about Jesus, okay? So, we know that he lived, that he's Jewish, that he lived in the first third of the first century, that they some people believed he was born out of wedlock, which is interesting, the the uh, repercussions of the virgin birth continue to stay with Jesus. Uh, his ministry intersected with that of John, who was baptizing people for the repentance of sins. He had a brother named James who was martyred in 62 AD by the high priest Albinus. That Josephus says that Jesus worked, quote, wondrous feats, um, feats, sorry. Josephus' words for what we know to be miracles. Uh, we're told by these secular sources that Jesus gathered disciples, and in fact, five of the disciples are given by name, that he was in conflict with the Jewish authorities. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate, which puts Jesus' death somewhere between 26 and 36 AD. There is a one Talmudic translation, a, a, a tradition from the Talmud, that says that Jesus was hung, but we know from some other early Christian writings that they would use sometimes uh, the verb hung to refer to suspension on a pole, which is what you would do uh, with a cross. We read that Jesus was a sorcerer who led Jesus astray. He was believed to be the Messiah by some, and he was believed to have been seen raised from the dead by his followers 
who now worship him as God. So if you look at reliable, historical, non-Christian sources, that's what we're told about Jesus, which is actually quite a lot of information. Now, you may be asking the question, well, why aren't there more uh, references to him historically? Well, no one in the ancient world wrote biographies about common people. And Jesus would have been viewed historically as a very common person. They wrote about rich people and influential people and, and warriors and soldiers and politicians and whatnot. I mean, that, that's what they were writing biographies about. You know, in today's Facebook world, some people seem to have this fetish that they want to know every little thing about everybody. And it's, you know, that's just a, a modern oddity. Uh, that's not the way biographies were done originally. Uh, they were written about the rich and the famous and the powerful people. And Jesus was none of that, at least not historically. And so it's not a surprise that we don't have more secular references to him. In conclusion, let me just say a couple of things. Uh, as I said before, it would be really odd if the single most significant influential person in the history of the world wasn't real. I mean, that, that would just be odd. And so uh, these people that question whether Jesus even lived, sometimes you kind of wonder if there's something else going on that would drive them to that point. And really, it, it's to say that the historical references that we have are not enough to prove that Jesus actually lived. Um, that's such a cynical view of history that you're not going to be able to prove much of anything from history. But given the normal standards we use uh, for determining the authenticity of historical people and historical writings, there's plenty of historical references to Jesus, not just one, uh, that he actually did exist. So that's one question that we can simply uh, put to bed very quickly. Uh, Jesus did exist. He was a real person. Thanks. Okay. <laughs> can everyone hear me? Okay, great. Um, so to sum that up, there are external sources for Jesus. The fact that there are any at all is amazing because he was a, a common man. And people didn't really write about people like that back then. So the fact that we have a significant amount of external sources that reference him as a, a person who really lived is really important and quite amazing. Um, the fact that even if you just take those few uh, references or quotes that he mentioned right at the end there about what we can know about Jesus just from external sources seems to kind of mimic the gospel immediately. Just those few things that Jesus was alive, he gathered disciples, he did wondrous works, he um, made the Jewish people angry, he was crucified, he was claimed to have been risen by his followers who then worshiped him as God. And um, later on his uh, brother who believed him to be God was also killed. That alone is like a summary of the gospel just from external sources. Even though when they're claiming it, they're saying supposed, you know, they supposedly believed he was God. Like, it's amazing to me that just from that, we can reconstruct the gospel message. Um, something that might bother you, um, just because like I am a 
You okay? Yeah, my water bottle. <laughs> I am a person who I really like to prove points. I told you in previous sessions that I'm like a debater and uh, I, I, I try to always think what my opponent will say so I could plan really what I'm going to say back before they even say it. And with the first video, he touched very lightly on external sources that he focused very heavily on the New Testament epistles and the gospels. And immediately, I think if I was a skeptic, I'd be like, so the majority of your stuff is Christian stuff, you know? But we have to learn ourselves and also to make other people make that separation. When we look at a document, we look at it as a historical document. It doesn't matter who wrote it. We judge each individual document by itself and we judge whether it's authentic and reliable. Just because Alexander's general wrote an account of his life doesn't make that account false. We have to look at that document by itself and judge it by the historical standards that historians for thousands of years have set it as a baseline for how we determine historical reliability. Okay, so even if it bothers you a little bit that you're like, oh, we shouldn't rely too much on the New Testament epistles or the Gospels, we have to breathe that out of our systems and we have to help other people see that too, that you can't be biased. You have, even though it was written by Christians, you still have to take each document by itself and examine it individually. And if you can prove reliability, it doesn't matter the personal conviction of the person who wrote it, we have to take it as factual and historically accurate. Um, I thought this would be interesting just because like I, when I see things on a screen, I always slightly worry that they could type anything, right? They could say, Josephus said Jesus was God and they just typed you this quote and how would you know? But I actually have the works of Josephus here. It is a massive book on the history of the Jews. It's quite insane. It's bigger than any Bible I've ever seen. Um, and I thought it'd be interesting to read it as he wrote it. Uh, so... I, I took a long time to find it because it's not like the Bible where there's like verses and stuff, but um, I'm going to read first a reference to John the Baptist, because if you remember from previous weeks, one of the things we do when we're looking at a document is we say we don't come from a position of suspicion, like we think all historical documents are false until they do something that proves themselves true, but we also don't come from a we just, <laughs> um, we also don't come from a position where we're like, well, we're just going to trust everything until it's proven false. We come from a neutral position and we say, okay, we are neither saying this text is false nor true. We're going to allow the writer to gain our trust, right? So we have the Bible, which speaks a lot about John the Baptist. So if we have an external source that can verify the story of John the Baptist, immediately the Bible gains some credibility because if it reports exactly what other texts report, so far it's accurate and it's truthful. And so it's earning our trust. All right, let's see if I can find this again. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I will skip some stuff because <clears throat> he writes like I speak. So he goes on. <laughs> um, this is from Antiquity of the Jews by Josephus, book 
18, chapter 5. No verses. <laughs> About this time, Aratus, the king of Arabia, Petra, and Herod had a quarrel on the account following. Herod the Tetrarch had married the daughter of Aratus and had lived with her a great while. But when he was and had lived with her a great, oh, sorry. But when he was once at Rome, he lodged with Herod, who was his brother indeed, but not by the same mother. For this Herod was the son of the high priest Simon's daughter. However, he fell in love with Herodias. This lost Herod's, this what? This lost Herod's wife. So there's, he is in love with his brother's wife who was the daughter of Aristobulus, their brother, and the sister of Agrippa the Great. This man ventured to talk to her about a marriage between them, which addressed when she admitted an agreement was made for her to change her habitation and come to him as soon as he should return from Rome. One article of this marriage also was this, that he should divorce Aratus's daughter, so Antipas, that's Herod, Herod Antipas, when he had made this agreement, sailed to Rome. And when he had gone, when he had done there the business he went about and was returned again, his wife, so the daughter of Aratus, the king of uh, Petra, having discovered the agreement he had made with Herodias and having learned it before he had noticed of her knowledge of the whole design, she desired him to send her to Mecheras, which is a place in the borders of the dominions of Aratus and Herod. Um, then I'm going to skip a bit. So basically, this affirms what we know in the Bible about um, Herod marrying his brother's wife. He was previously, he was already married to someone else. Then his current wife, when she found out he was arranging to marry this other woman, she escaped and went to another place in a territory between her father's kingdom and, and Herod's kingdom because they, they border each other, okay? Um, so I'm gonna skip they go on a little bit more detail about how he married Herodias and stuff. Um, and then something bad happened to Herod's army, but I'm not gonna read it. Now, some of the Jews thought that the destruction of Herod's army came from God and that very justly as a punishment of what he did against John that was called the Baptist. For Herod slew him, who was a good man, and commanded the Jews to exercise virtue, both as to righteousness towards one another and piety towards God, and so to come to baptism, for that the washing with water would be acceptable to him, if they made use of it, not in order to the putting away of or the remission of some sins only, but for the purification of the body, supposing still that the soul was thoroughly purified beforehand by righteousness. Now when many others in crowds, now when many others came in crowds about him, they were greatly moved or pleased by hearing his words. Herod, who feared lest the great influence John had over the people might put it into his power and inclination to raise rebellions, for they seemed to do anything he would advise, thought it best by putting him to death to prevent any mischief he might cause and not bring himself into difficulties by sparing a man who might make him repent of it when it should be too late. So 
pretty accurate, pretty much exactly what the Bible tells us. It actually gives more detail than the Bible gives, but 100% aligned with what we know about John the Baptist in the Bible um, and actually affirming him as a righteous, holy man, like Josephus, who is a Jew, did not become a Christian, affirms John as a holy man who preached righteousness and repentance of sins. So Josephus seems to be on John's side. Unfortunately, he never joined the Jesus cause, but that's, that's a pretty great um, attestation. Then I'm going to read the one about um, Jesus's brother. So you'll remember that the second guy, and I played that for a reason, because the first guy didn't tell us that there are scholars that doubt the, the I haven't got there yet, but the last reference I'm going to read, they, they say that later on, they think Christians added in some words to make it more push towards that Jesus is God, okay? And the first guy didn't mention that, but I wanted to mention it because I don't want to like hide anything from you. I don't want you to be in an argument with a skeptic and they're like, well, did you know some people say that Josephus didn't even write that? I want you to know all the facts so that you can come with a good argument. So the second thing I'm reading is not disputed. Like no one says, oh, Josephus didn't write this or Christians added it later. Um, It's really hard without verses. God bless the people that put verses in the Bible or this would be the same problem we had all the time. Okay, I'm gonna start at a random sentence, but bear with me. But this younger Annas, who, as we have told you already, took the high priesthood, was a bold man in his temper and very insolent. He was also of the sect of the Sadducees who are very rigid in judging offenders above all the rest of the Jews as we have already observed. When therefore Annas was of this disposition, he thought he, had an, he thought he had now a proper opportunity to exercise his authority. Festus, who was a governor, a Roman governor, was now dead and Albinus was put, sorry, and Albinus was but upon the road. So he assembled the Sanhedrin of judges and brought before them the brother of Jesus, who was called Christ, whose name was James, and some others, or some of his companions. And when he had formed an accusation against them as breakers of the law, he delivered them to be stoned. So again, no one disputes that Josephus wrote this. All scholars agree that he did. And in this, he affirms that there was someone called James, who was the brother of a man named Jesus. And this Jesus was called Christ, which is Messiah, right? So here we have a very clear record that Jesus existed. By the way, um, Josephus wrote this in about um, 71 AD. So Jesus was dead, but many of the disciples were still alive because Jesus died probably mid um, 30s AD and uh, Apostle John died, I think, if I remember correctly, around 90 AD. So when Josephus wrote this, we know that John was still alive um, and some of the other disciples were alive too. Uh, some of them had already died. By that stage, we think Peter had died. James obviously had died, but some were still alive. Some were not sure of the date. So this is, this is firsthand, you know, this is not someone looking back and, oh, my grandmother told me about this Jesus guy. This is a guy who was alive during the 
the New Testament church during the times of Jesus had possibly even met some of the people that claimed to be Christians who witnessed Jesus talking. So this is why Josephus is so emphasized by historians because he's the oldest record we have and the things he says seem to line up with what we know about Christianity. Now I'm going to read you the part that people are skeptical about. And by the way, skeptical doesn't mean 100% he didn't write this. There are just some people who say, I think Christians added it later and they give their arguments. For example, he used the word Christus instead of like Mashiach, which would have been Messiah. He used the, the Greek word, but uh, it's not impossible that he would have used that considering Romans ruled the area. He obviously could speak both languages. We know that the New Testament was written in Greek and they refer to um, Jesus as Christ. And so it's not illogical to presume he might have used the more colloquial term for Jesus, but there is debate. But the debate isn't that he didn't write any of this. It's that certain parts were put in in between his words. Okay, so this is from also um, book 18, chapter three. And the previous one was book 20, chapter nine, I think. If you're like really curious, you can ask me for the references later. Um, okay, so there's a piece speaking about Pilate, which I'm not gonna read because it's just information about Pilate as a governor. And then it says, now, there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him. For he appeared to them alive again on the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold these and thousand other wonderful things concerning him. And the tribe of Christians so named for him are not extinct at this day. So I can't remember all the parts that are questionable. I know the one was, um, if it be lawful to call him a man. So in other words, most scholars say that at the very least, we know that he said, now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, for he was a doer of wonderful works. So 100%, no scholar thinks that that wasn't Josephus. The parting question is, if it be lawful to call him a man. They think Christians added that later because like, oh, how dare you call him a man, you know? Um, however, if Josephus did write this, it's really interesting that he adds that, right? He's not a Christian, but if he wrote that, it's kind of like he's like a little nervous. You know, there was a man named Jesus, I don't really know if I'm allowed to say he's a man. So I'm just writing the sentence in there. <laughs> um, the other part in question was um, he was the Christ. I think uh, they say he either wrote he was Christ as in a, a version or they say it's left out completely. Um, the part about Pilate uh, crucifying him they all affirm is accurate and written by Josephus 100% that those who loved him didn't forsake him. No one has a problem with that. Um, I think they said there was some confusion about whether that he wrote and he appeared to them alive on the third day. 
and the part about the prophets foretelling it, there's question about that. Um, and the last sentence and the tribe of Christians, so named for him, are not extinct at this day. That one is written by Josephus 100%. No one has a problem with that. So even if we eliminate the questionable parts, we have enough to prove today's question. There was a man named Jesus who lived in the first century and who had disciples who followed him and worshipped him as God. And he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. So just looking at today's question, we've proved what we wanted to prove. Um, now, with regards to everything else, whether he was the son of God, that's when we have to start looking at all the documents by themselves and judging them. And if we can prove those were eyewitnesses, that they were accurate, et cetera, et cetera, then we can start to prove more about Jesus and who he was. But for today, we've established that Jesus actually existed, which all of you already knew, but now you have proof that you can go out with and um, convince others. All right, let's, well, we've, I didn't actually prepare questions and I'll tell you guys why when we get to prayer requests. Um, but if anyone wants to say something, feel free. Were any of you like really bored? Like it was like excruciating to watch. Like I'm, I'm sorry, at times I know it can be a little bit much, but I, I really looked through so many videos guys and so many things. And those were the most interesting. <laughs> so I'm really trying to, to keep you entertained at the same time, but you know, it's like mathematics, right? It, it can only get so interesting if you're not naturally predisposed to enjoy things like that. Any comments from the online people? Didn't he also refer to Jesus as Christ in his account by James? Yes, he did. Um, he did refer to him as Christ in that account about James. And as far as I know, at least from those lectures and what I've heard, they don't dispute that. So yes, I don't know though, if that time he wrote Messiah or Christ, I haven't heard. And like, this is written in English, so I don't know what the original translation was, but I didn't come across anything that disputed that. Any other questions or comments? Anything that makes you uncomfortable? Oh, okay. So no, nothing made me uncomfortable. Um, but I, okay. So I kind of like chase rabbit holes and unfortunately sometimes I like stumble upon more conspiracies than like <laughs> actual factual, actual factual historical documents. And um, I was wondering, like I had, I found, I think what was like a historical piece of evidence that like Pilate actually existed because they found like a brick thing in the 60s and his name was on it and I was like okay cool there are a lot of things out there that said that Pilate was writing to Caesar and like he mentioned Jesus and like the crucifixion but then I couldn't find anything that like was actually historical or like counted like that and I was wondering if you had found anything like that online or anything so from my current understanding, and again, I'm not a professor in theology, so I don't know everything, but from the research I've done, for a long time, we didn't have any proof outside the Bible that Pilate existed. And a lot of skeptics used that to disprove the Bible. They said there's no record anywhere of a governor called um, Pontius Pilate, and therefore 
since he was such a central figure in the crucifixion, they then used that to doubt the crucifixion. And then like Jack was saying, in the 60s, they found a stone tablet, uh, well, a fragment, it wasn't fully formed, but it was kind of like broken off. And on it was speaking about there being a governor called Pontius Pilate, but it's like broken sentences. But the fact that we actually found something that old that's like inscribed in stone now validates that Pontius Pilate was a real person who existed. Um, I've never heard any record of him talking to Caesar about Jesus or anything like that. The only historical evidence I know of that points to his existence is the stone and of, of course Christian texts, which most people reject because they're Christian texts, which they shouldn't. But outside of that, no, I'm not aware of anything that historians all agree proves that he spoke about Jesus or spoke to Jesus besides the gospel accounts. But again, if we can prove the reliability of the New Testament epistles and the gospels, then historians and skeptics should look at that and say, well, he did exist and he did speak to Jesus. You gotta go. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, Ashley. <laughs> Do you want to close in prayer or sure yeah you're okay yeah <laughs> um jesus thank you so much for having us meet with you and together um today and just learn a little bit more about um your existence and um the way that you have put the bible together and uh, how you let it happen the way it did and just for the community that we have together um, and I just pray that we all have good weeks and that you show us all favor um, in all of our various circumstances. Um, amen.